Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person. But to eat with unwashed hands do not defile anyone. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series on the Gospel of Matthew. And, and today, as we look at this text that raises so many important questions of what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be that community that's called, that's created, that's crafted by the Word of God? And so before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the word of God that proclaims the gospel to us. Lord, and I pray that all that follows would proclaim this text rightly. And that you, Lord, would apply the truths here to our heads, to our hearts, and to our hands by the work of your spirit. And it's in the name of Christ that we ask this. Amen. Well, this passage, it, it brings us face to face with the question of Scripture and tradition. The scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they ask, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And notice what they say is broken here. What the disciples break is the tradition of the elders, the tradition of uh, that community that the Pharisees consider themselves to be a part of. And Jesus does eventually answer this question, but first he responds by posing a question 
to them. Jesus asked them, why is it that they have put in place a tradition that displaces the word of God? Specifically, Christ has the fifth commandment in mind here. Honor your father and your mother. This is the very word of God, and this command must be received as such. However, the tradition of the Pharisees has made void, has nullified, has silenced the word of God. As Christ points out to them, you say if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And Christ is, is speaking here about the practice whereby adult children, rather than helping to support their parents with, the, with resources as they aged, uh, this support being one of the ways that parents were honored in Christ's contemporary culture. Instead of doing this, the children would declare that anything that they would have given to their parents to be what is called in, in Greek, doron, or in Hebrew, korban. Both of these words mean something like, like offering. And this action meant that these resources were now devoted to God. From then on, whatever resources that the, child, uh, that the child would and should have supplied for the parents in fulfilling the commandment to honor them would now be given directly to God, directly to the religious leaders and the religious institutions. Such a child could no longer be bothered by taking care of their parents. The only necessary goal was to honor God and, and to cut out, so to speak, the parental middleman. And regardless of why this practice was initially instituted, it clearly offered more temptation for religious authorities to line their pockets and more temptation for adult children to, to neglect uh, the duties to their parents for the sake of greed. Ultimately, what this tradition of Doran or Korban did was to nullify, negate, and to silence the word of God. Specifically, in that culture, if it was followed, it led adult children to forsake the fifth commandment, the commandment of honoring father and mother. So what this tradition did was stifle Scripture. So we have to step back and ask, well, what is the proper response? And there is one not uncommon Protestant response. And that is to just forget all about tradition. Forget all about that stuff that gets in the way of reading the Bible. Just give me the Bible. And this position is often called no creed but the Bible. But before we go there, we have to ask an even deeper question. What exactly is tradition? What is tradition? And perhaps no thinker in recent history has, has helped us better understand the concept of tradition than the philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer. And for Gadamer, the way we as humans operate, the way we do things, the way we understand, it's always, always in the context of a tradition. But there's a problem because in the modern age, we think of tradition as something only to be thrown off, something to be disavowed, only something that traps us in the primitive thoughts of the past. And so in the case of the Bible, we just want the Bible free of all that past tradition. But what happens, for instance, 
When we come to the Gospels and we find Christ saying what appears to be contradictory things. For instance, at one point Christ tells us, before Abraham was, I am. And Christ is saying more than that he simply existed before Abraham, the Abraham that we meet in Genesis. When Christ says, I am, he is identifying himself by way of the divine name, the covenant name of the Lord, the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. However, in, in another place, Christ tells us, the Father is greater than I. Here Christ is saying that he is somehow less, somehow lower than the Father. But how can this be? Is Christ equal with God or is Christ less than God? And how are we to understand this, especially if it's just me and the Bible? You have to make a theological decision here. There's no way around it. In making sense of these texts, you will have to put forward a theology of who Christ is. If you're going to read these two passages with any kind of coherence, you can't ultimately escape theology. But thankfully, the Christian tradition give us, gives us resources that we need. And here we come to a key point about the Christian tradition. It's intended to help us read the Bible rightly. Tradition is not meant to displace the Word of God, as does the tradition of the Pharisees here. No, tradition is meant to cast a light upon Scripture. The problem with the Pharisees is not tradition, but the fact that they have turned tradition on its head. They have the whole thing backwards. The Christian tradition and Scripture cannot and should not be separated. Let's return to Gadamer. When speaking of a tradition of reading some classic or seminal text, Gadamer tells us that a tradition can be understood as the history of effects of a text upon the community. A tradition in this sense is a community that stretches across generations and whose members have given themselves to reading and understanding and wrestling with a particular text. The whole tradition just is a living community of interpretation that is formed by the ways that the text has formed and affected the community. The very tradition exists only by way of seeking to understand that text that gives the tradition life. And if we apply this to the Christian tradition, then the Christian tradition exists as it seeks to understand Scripture. And it's the Spirit who opens the eyes of the church to read and understand and to embrace and love Scripture. As theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes, tradition becomes the history of effects of the Spirit. So think about it. The Christian tradition becomes that treasure trove, that treasure chest, that treasury of the Holy Spirit's work within the church as the church seeks to understand Scripture. But to reject Christian tradition, that would mean to reject the work of the Holy Spirit and countless saints 
that came before us. To reject Christian tradition would be to place our individual selves above the collective voice of the communion of the saints. To reject Christian tradition would be to elevate and to exalt the lone individual. To reject Christian tradition, ironically, would be to embrace the modern tradition of expressive individualism. No creed but the Bible is just the religious version of follow your own truth. Again, properly understood, the Christian tradition centers upon the right reading of Scripture. However, to do what the Pharisees have done to silence and nullify God's word by tradition, again, that's to get the whole thing backwards. The Christian tradition exists by and for and in and through understanding Scripture. And this brings us to another contrast that we're, that we're prone to think about in modernity. And sort of a contrast to this pure objectivity, Gadamer tells us that the prejudgments that we bring to a text or to a book, they can actually help us to read that book better. They don't necessarily hinder us. We come to read rightly when we come to a book, when we come to a text with the right prejudgments. In the case of Scripture, this means coming to Scripture with those prejudgments, with those theological positions that the text has produced in the Christian tradition. Uh, the church father Irenaeus, he gives us a helpful analogy here. He compares scripture to a mosaic with, with numerous and many pieces. And he tells us that we can fit these pieces together into the image of a wonderful and majestic king, right? The, the image of Jesus Christ. And he says, this is reading scripture rightly. This is putting together the pieces rightly. But Irenaeus warns that we might also assemble the pieces of scripture, the texts of scripture wrongly and end up with the image of a fox, the image of a dog, not Christ the King. And so one of the prejudgments we need as part of the Christian tradition is to have the right picture of Christ in mind. We must let the tradition point us to the King whose scripture presents to us. Not a fox, and not a dog, but Christ Jesus himself. But who is this Christ? For instance, we think about these earlier examples of, of sayings of Christ that seem to be contradictory. What do we do? Perhaps someone thinks that Jesus ultimately and exclusively is less than the Father. And, you know, when Jesus speaks of, of, of his equality with God, he's only telling us that he's closer to God than the rest of creation. He's not really God, but he is greater than every other creature that exists. Someone might read these texts in this way, and they would be espousing the heresy of Arianism. Rather than the image of a king, here they have assembled the picture of a fox. Perhaps another person tries to bring these seemingly contradictory texts together by saying that Christ is both less than and equal to the Father because he's, he's a mixture of God and humanity. Christ, he, he's sort of a concoction of, of human nature and the divine nature. And so what we get is a kind of new third thing. We get a kind of divine human hybrid. 
Someone might read the text in this way and such a person would be espousing the heresy of what is known as Eutychianism. Rather than the image of a king, we here have a symbol that of a fox. But remember, the Christian tradition exists as it seeks across centuries and cultures to understand and embrace and to live out Scripture. Understanding and embracing Scripture is tradition's origin and aim. It is tradition's ground and goal. And this brings us to a key commitment of the Reformation, one that is often caricatured and exaggerated and misused, what's known as sola scriptura. Wrongly embraced, this leads us back to just me and the Bible without all of that stifling tradition. But this is not how the Reformers understood sola scriptura. To again cite Kevin Van Hooser, he explains that sola scriptura means that scripture alone authorizes. But scripture does not authorize alone. Scripture is the ultimate authority here. Scripture is the norming norm, the inerrant and infallible word of God that directs us in all areas of the church's faith and practice. Tradition is not infallible. Tradition can make mistakes. In the words of the reformers, we should always be reforming, always subjecting and submitting all that we do to the continual reading of Scripture. However, we can't forget that the Reformation was a time of multiple confessions. Our own Presbyterian tradition, which traces back to the reformers, is built upon the Westminster Standards. And that is the fruit of countless readings of Scripture aided by the larger Christian tradition. The standards are meant to make us better readers of Scripture. And the confessional roots of Presbyterianism call us, yes, to let Scripture alone authorize, but not to let Scripture authorize alone. And so, in light of all this, where does this leave us with these seemingly contradictory sayings of Christ before Abraham was, I am, and the Father is greater than I. Well, Augustine is helpful here. First, he uses a key conviction of Christian tradition, and that is that the ultimate interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so Augustine looks to Philippians 2 to help solve this puzzle. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Christ, being in the form of God, humbled himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant. Augustine reads these two forms as two natures. The form of God, it speaks of Christ's divine nature. And the form of servant, well, it speaks of Christ's human nature. Yet, at the same time, it's that one divine son, the Logos. And so, the one divine person of Christ possesses both the divine nature and a human nature, and so when Christ says, before Abraham was, I am, the one speaker, the one person of Christ, is speaking according to the form of God, according to his divine nature. However, when Christ says, the Father is greater than I, he's speaking according to the form of servant, according to his human nature. And Augustine was not alone in reading the text this way. Accordingly, this true understanding of who Christ is came to be codified 
as an essential part of the Christian tradition at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And the Chalcedonian Creed tells us that Christ's human and divine nature are united in his one divine person, and that these two natures are united without confusion or division or any kind of mixing. This gives us the right prejudgments, the right mosaic image to understand and embrace Scripture rightly. Again, the Christian tradition is a tradition in Gadamer's sense. It's a tradition that exists as it gives itself to a particular text. And the text here is none other than Scripture itself. And so, coming back to the Pharisees, they've completely misunderstood the proper role of tradition. They're not seeking to submit themselves to Scripture, but to silence Scripture. And what specifically are they trying to silence? Well, again, it's that commandment not to honor, or sorry, to honor mother and father. And there is, of course, a direct application to this command. You, oh, sorry, we must honor our parents. But one problem here that the Pharisees have fallen into is that they've set up a mutually exclusive framework. You can either honor God or you can honor parents. You can't do both. And yes, if that's the case, then we must honor God and devote all of our resources directly to him. But we have to realize that this is a false dichotomy. The Pharisees here have conflated ultimate ends with proximate ends. So imagine the following scenario. Suppose you're at a huge university lecture, and suppose afterwards you try to conquer your fear of public speaking by publicly asking a question to the presenter of the lecture, but you do so only because you want to conquer that fear of public speaking. You're asking the question simply because you want to overcome that fear of public speaking. But imagine the same scenario, but in this case, after listening humbly and thoughtfully to the speaker, you, you believe that the speaker has said something unjust. You have a deep fear of public speaking, but you force yourself to overcome this fear for the sake of justice. You exercise your courage and you come to the microphone and you ask a probing question for the sake of justice. This is true courage because it is ordered to justice. In the second scenario, courage is a proximate end and justice is the ultimate end. We don't need to choose between courage and justice. No, instead we practice courage here in order to practice justice. It's not a matter of either courage or justice. That would mean that both courage and justice are ultimate ends. No, in this scenario, courage is what we call a proximate end that leads to the ultimate end of justice. True courage is rightly ordered to justice. In the same way, honoring parents and honoring God, they are not at odds. They are not two competing ultimate ends. No, honoring parents is a very good proximate end that leads to the greatest good, the ultimate end of honoring God. And for the Christian, all that we do should be directed to this ultimate end of loving and worshiping and adoring and enjoying God. And one way that we love and honor God is by rightly loving our neighbor, even and especially our parents. 
But this also means that we do not honor our parents in a way that would dishonor God. We would not be properly honoring our parents if they asked us to do something that would be disobedient to God and we comply. For instance, perhaps our parents ask us to deny our Christian convictions in a certain situation or to engage in a dishonest financial practice or to skip church for some Sunday morning activity or to let our children, their grandchildren, watch a movie that we know our children should not watch. In these cases, if we comply with this, we are not honoring God. This would not be honoring parents properly because it would not be honoring God. True courage is ordered to justice. True honoring of parents is ordered to honoring God. Again, honoring parents is a way that we honor God. Honoring parents is like a rung on a ladder that leads up to honoring God. Honoring parents is like a road that leads to the destination of honoring God. It's a proximate end that leads to the ultimate end of honoring God. And this particular command to honor parents is one that we need to pay special attention to in our modern moment. For instance, the theological ethicist Gilbert Mylander, he writes the following about the responsibilities between family members in a wonderfully titled article, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones. And it's, it's a bit of a, a longer quote, but it's good. He writes, is this not in large measure what it means to belong to a family? To burden each other and to find almost miraculously that others are willing, even happy to carry such burdens. Families would not have the significance they do for us if they did not give us claim upon each other. At least in this sphere, we do not come together as autonomous individuals freely contracting with each other. It's therefore understandable that we sometimes chafe under these burdens. If, however, we also go on to reject them, we cease to live in the kind of moral community that deserves to be called a family. Morality consists in large part in learning to deal with the unwanted and unexpected interruptions to our plans. I have tried to teach that lesson to my children. Perhaps I will teach it best when I am a burden to them in dying. This is an important truth for us right now, especially at a time when parents burdening their children seem so out of step with the cultural ideal. Of course, this can take unhealthy forms. There is a place for healthy boundaries here. Please hear that. But Mylander reminds us that family members naturally place responsibilities upon one another. And these responsibilities make the family a place of love and refuge and unmerited service. These responsibilities make the family a place where people are free to burden, to be weak, to be needy, to ask for help, to be vulnerable, to be ill, to be struggling with mental health, to be honest, to be dying. Without the burdens placed upon us, burdens that we have not chosen, burdens of family, then we will lose that primary social means by which these burdens are meant to be borne, meant to be carried in our society. 
We are burdened by the bonds of family, and that's a good thing. We are all burdened, and we all burden. So yes, honor your father and mother. But there's more. This also directs us to our earlier discussion about the tradition. As the Westminster Larger Catechism tells us, which, which helps form the Presbyterian tradition, which is a particular part of the larger Christian tradition, it tells us that the command to honor our parents it actually applies to all of the proper authorities in our life. One of those is the church. And first of all, this means that the church is a family that should exist in the same relation of bonds by which the biological or legal family burdens one another. The widow, the orphan, and all of those without biological or legal family, they should find a family in the church with those who share together the very blood of Christ. We are called to be the family of God to one another, and we have to recognize the call to burden one another. In what areas do you need help? What do you need? Reach out to this church. Burden this community of yours. If we, as the church, as a family cannot lovingly burden one another, then we too have made void the word of God, just like the Pharisees. You could even start by simply sending me an email if that would be the easiest way to reach out for help. Secondly, rightly attending to church tradition is a way that we honor our mothers and fathers in the faith. They have come before us, they have given themselves to scripture, and we take our place in this tradition that exists by understanding and embracing scripture. However, as before, we cannot honor our fathers and mothers in the faith by dishonoring God. So yes, we read scripture with tradition that they have gifted to us. Tradition means handing down. But we always test that tradition against scripture itself. And in so doing, we give proper honor, God-honoring honor, to our parents in the tradition. And so one immediately applic immediate application of this is if you have never read, for instance, the Nicene or the Chalcedonian creeds, which are affirmed by all Christians, read them. If you've never read the confessional documents of our particular Presbyterian tradition, the Westminster Standards, I would encourage you to read them and apply all of these to the right reading of scripture. I would also encourage you to find out where our particular tradition fits within the larger Christian tradition, and all the while test all of this against the scriptures, which again is what gives the Christian tradition life. Another application, we should read old books. If we have never read books by Christians from other centuries, we are not properly honoring our fathers and our mothers in the faith. C.S. Lewis is adamant about this. Yes, he says when we read old books, we do see their errors, but they can also help us see the errors of our own modern moment. Lewis tells us, they made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. And by attending to the great tradition of our fathers and mothers in the faith, again, we come to read scripture better and to see Christ as that great king that he is and not the fox or the dog. And this brings us to the matter of the heart. 
Christ, quoting Isaiah, says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And this right here is where the Pharisees are. Accordingly, Jesus goes on to answer that first question that they asked about the disciples not washing their hands before they eat. Christ explains, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Unlike the Pharisees, the disciples are not actually breaking any explicit commandment by not washing their hands. Even more, the Pharisees themselves are not reading the purity rituals rightly. Those are rituals that we find in the Old Testament. As theologian Peter Lightheart writes of this passage, most forms of uncleanness revolt, result from emissions from inside the body or flesh breaking through the skin. There were impurities that came from without, touching a dead body or eating unclean foods, but these were all lesser forms of impurity that could be taken care of simply by washing. The impurities that required more elaborate, sacrificial cleansing rites were the ones that defiled from within. We spent quite a bit of time talking about ritual purity and impurity in, in our sermon on the leper in Matthew 8, so we don't need to retrace that. But in a nutshell, I think we best understand purity here as communicating life and impurity as communicating death. So what does that mean if we take that in conjunction with Lightheart? Well, what is it that kills you? What is it that brings death? What is most deadly to you? What should you be most on guard against? What is our absolute greatest danger? Christ tells us it's not something from the outside. It's not sickness or illness or health problems, financial difficulties, professional failures, or this or that particular group, as difficult as those things might be. No, Christ tells us that your greatest danger, what is most deadly to you, is your own heart. Just like the Pharisees have scripture and tradition backwards, so too do they have this backwards. They think that death primarily comes from out there. They think we're fine, we're okay, we're anything but evil. The dangers are out there, the dangers are not in my heart. But Christ tells them, no, 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 you've got this backwards too. Your greatest danger is inside of you. It's your own heart. And we have to ask, do we believe this? Do you actually believe that what is most dangerous and deadly to you is the hardness of your own heart? And this is because from our heart, all of our actions flow. Christ tells us, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Remember that before Christ presented the Pharisees with how they made the fifth commandment void, that of honoring parents. But now Christ is showing them that by their hearts, and by our hearts too, We've also made void commandments 6 through 10. That's exactly what Christ has just traced here. Christ is showing all of the ways that our hearts keep us from loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so, stepping back, what does all of this mean? Well, again, tradition is meant to make us right readers of Scripture. And even more, 
Christ is here telling us that Scripture cannot be read and embraced and lived without hearts that honor God. Here, both improper tradition and hard hearts have made void commandments 5 through 10, all of those ways that God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if that's the case, this means that the ultimate aim of tradition is to read Scripture in a way that gives us hearts that honor and love God. Just as true courage is ordered to justice, remember our example? So too, truly honoring parents and truly loving our neighbor, they're honored, they're ordered to honor and love God. That's why we can't properly keep commandments 5 through 10 without keeping commandments 1 through 4. The first four commandments instruct us that above all else, we must love and honor God. If we don't love and honor God in our hearts, then everything is for naught. But how is it that we do this? Well, we come to love God by looking at Christ. We read Scripture with the tradition, and it tells us what we must see in Scripture. Not a fox, not a dog, but a gracious and good and great and loving and majestic king. We read Scripture to see, to hear, to find, to taste, to commune with Christ Jesus, the one divine person who, being divine, also added to himself our humanity. But why would this move our hearts? Why would this lead us to honor God? Well, because it tells us that God the Son is so great that he can take our humanity and still be holy God. But why is it that he would take our humanity? Well, he did it because he loves us. He did it because we have broken each one of the Ten Commandments. We have made void the Word of God by all the ways we have made our hearts hard and all the ways that we have treated ourselves like a tradition unto ourselves. Christ took our humanity to fulfill each and every commandment on our behalf, perfectly loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. Christ took our humanity to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our hardness of heart. On the cross, he suffered the death that our hardness of heart both merits and leads to. This is the fully divine and the fully human Christ. The Christ that alone can save us. The Christ that alone can show us God's full greatness. The Christ that alone can soften even the hardest of hearts and elicit the deepest love for God. This is the Christ that can alone cleanse us. And no amount of hand washing will work here. Just ask Pilate. Only faith in Christ can take our guilt only faith in Christ can receive his righteousness. Only faith in Christ can soften our hearts. And only faith in Christ by the Spirit can give us a love that honors God above all else. This is the Christ that the Christian tradition directs us to in rightly reading the scriptures. This is the Christ who has created and called and crafted the church in each and every generation. This is the Christ who does not make void, but makes efficacious the word of God in each and every aspect of our lives. This and this alone is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. 
and for all that you've given to us. Lead us, guide us, and bless us, Lord. Thank you for Christ Jesus, Lord. Thank you for who he is. Thank you that he is a great, majestic king. Thank you, Lord, that he has taken our humanity upon himself, Lord, that he has lived the life that we should have lived, that he has died the death that we should have died, so that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, help that to stir our hearts, that we may love and adore and honor and worship you as is proper. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.